Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Bellinger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Bellinger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Welcome to episode five, and today we have two mystery stories that don't feature Sherlock Holmes, or do they? It's The Man with the Watches and The Lost Special, written by Conan Doyle for The Strand in 1898, part of his Round the Fire series, when his great detective was well and truly over the Reichenbach. Paul, you chose these two stories, so why did you want us to uh, have a look at these? Well, to start with, they are a pair of excellent uh, detective stories um, with the added element of were they canonical stories or is this Conan Doyle writing detective stories without Holmes and enjoying himself thoroughly? Um, and they're also, uh, they, they, they are they're, they're fun as well, being railway-based uh, detective stories. And he's paving the way for uh, Agatha Christie, perhaps, and her many sort of railway stories. Yes, indeed. And both stories are peculiar in the way in which they're constructed, in that they're mysteries and um, confessions, really. And the part played by the detective is very much restricted. Restricted, and all the detectives involved seem to be, uh, if not incompetent, then uh, they're, they're, they're all out of their depth. Absolutely. So before we get into the stories themselves, a bit on the writing and publication history for the two tales. They were written in 1898 when Conan was, uh, let's say, a little light on funds. He had commissioned in 1897 uh, the building of a private residence for himself and his family, Undershaw, which is in Surrey, and it still exists today as a school for children with autism. The build went over budget and it was extremely costly to fit out. Uh, His first thoughts actually turned to that old cash cow Sherlock Holmes, and in September 1897 he'd already developed the plot for a Sherlock Holmes play that he would eventually send to uh, Henry Irving, although Henry Irving wouldn't take it up, and it would eventually be picked up by William Gillette, who would rewrite it quite heavily and produce it over many years. So towards the end of 1897, in December, in fact, he wrote to his mother stating, I want now to write some short stories to raise the wind, in his words. And uh, those stories were the 12 Round the Fire stories, which he wrote between March and October 1898. His diary for 1898 exists, and we know from this that this was um, a very rapid turnaround of writing for for Conan Doyle. He wrote 76,000 words over the course of... uh, little under seven months and that year he made about seven thousand pounds income but two thousand three hundred and forty pounds was um from the round the fire stories themselves so he actually made a third of his income that year came just from writing these 12 short stories the man with the watches first appeared in the strand magazine in july 1898 and the lost special appeared the next issue august 1898 
they were actually written in a different order. And when they were then finally collected as a book, they were actually in a very different order again. There is a peculiarity in the, the history of the Round the Fire stories in that they were not anthologized until 1908. And there's a tantalizing reference in a letter from Conan Doyle to his mother in 1903 in which he talks about deliberately suppressing the publication of the Round the Fire stories. He writes, I don't suppose any man has ever sacrificed so much money to preserve his ideal of art as I have done. Witness my suppression of Girdleston, my refusal to serialise a duet, and my refusal to republish in book form the Round the Fire series of stories. There's a big question mark around why he would have chosen to suppress those stories. And perhaps it's because they were dealing with topics such as insanity and alcoholism, which were personal to himself and his background, and also appear in things like uh, Girdleston. So let's get started with the first of the two stories, The Man with the Watches. Paul, give us a bit of an introduction. It is a foul rainy day in London in March 1892, and two figures are seen hurrying to catch the five o'clock express from Euston Station to Manchester. One is a tall man in his fifties, whose features are hidden by the upturned astrakhan collar of his overcoat. His companion is a tall young lady, her face obscured by a veil. They refuse a smoking compartment, whose lone occupant, a bearded middle-aged man, is clearly affected by their sudden appearance. He tries to speak, but his words are lost in the noise of the departing train. It stops briefly at Wilsdon at 5.12, and then again at Rugby at 6.50, where the open door of a first-class carriage attracts notice. The three passengers have now vanished, and in their carriage is the body of a young man who has been shot through the heart. There is no clue to his identity, but oddly he is in possession of six valuable gold watches, all of American manufacture. So given the nature of these stories, we're unfortunately going to have to spoil them, so if you haven't already read them, pause the podcast and go off and get a copy, because the solution in this instance is that there was no young lady, that the two people who got on the train were actually the fantastically named Sparrow McCoy and his companion Edward, and the solo gentleman in the other carriage was James, Edward's brother, and that there is a scuffle between the three, and Sparrow McCoy accidentally shoots Edward dead. It transpires that McCoy and Edward were a pair of American criminals, and it's the relationship between McCoy and Edward that makes this a really interesting story. So, Paul, uh, tell us a bit more about that central relationship between the two. Yeah, it's 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 quite veiled, um, which is fitting, um, considering both characters are disguising their faces <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when we first meet them. Um, but it, it seems quite clear that these two, as well as being um, a, a criminal duo, are also, it would appear, a pair of male lovers. Mm. Um, it's it's all expressed in a, in a relatively subtle way, um, very unusual for a mainstream crime story of this period for this subtext to be um, present, especially as we're, we're only talking you know, three years after the uh, conviction of Oscar Wilde um, mm. for homosexual offences uh, in 1895. Uh, but the, the language used is, is very indicative. When James is talking of his brother Edward, he, he describes him uh, as a bright, spirited boy and just one of the most beautiful creatures that ever lived. But there was always a soft spot in him and it was like mould in cheese, for it spread and spread, and nothing that you could do would stop it. Mother saw it just as clearly as I did, but she went on spoiling him all the same, for he had such a way with him that you could refuse him nothing. 
Mm, and there are a lot of those stereotypical signifiers throughout the story. So James also says he'd never found Edward so impossible to soften or to move, and there's the implication that Edward has been mollycoddled by his mother to some extent, mm. and, and mm. that that has softened him in some way. But that phrase about mould and cheese is a particularly uh, interesting one because mm. it uh, there's it, almost a sense of infection, which we might come on to later in terms of Conan Doyle's and it, approach. It's, it's deliberately ambiguous because it, it obviously is also referring to his, his criminal tendencies. And when he leaves home, he falls in with, with Sparrow McCoy and becomes a card sharp with mm. him. So there's, there's that level of, of, of what could be described as mould in his character. But then the other element uh, comes in with um, him and Sparrow being lovers. And one of the games they play uh, in their criminal partnership is Edward's beauty, as described by his brother, uh, enables him to dress up as a woman very convincingly. And it just adds this extra level of frisson to the the, the whole affair. Mm. And if we were in doubt that this is part of the text... You just have to look at James's invective when he is confronting Sparrow McCoy and Edward, and he's horrified to find Edward dressed up as a woman. Sparrow McCoy says that uh, Edward is a, is a man, and James's response is, A man? Well, I'm glad to have your friend's assurance of it, for no one would suspect it to see you looking like a boarding school missy. I don't suppose in all this country there is a more contemptible-looking creature than you are as you sit there with that dolly pinafore upon you. And then he uses this particularly interesting phrase, you'll never make a Mary Jane of yourself while I can help it. Yes, this is a very striking phrase to use because at at this time, male prostitutes in in London in particular were known uh, as as Mary Anne's Mm. on the whole, but Mary Jane would would pass uh, just the same. So it, it seems that his brother is imputing Mm. Um, that that perhaps there is more to Edward's criminal behaviour than simply card sharping. Yes, and the implication in the story is that this is more than just cross-dressing. Yeah, this this is something the uh, the public had become aware of, uh, in particular in, in 1871, uh, when a, a pair of young clerks, Ernest Bolton and William Park, were arrested by the police for parading around as women at the Burlington Arcade uh, the Alhambra Leicester Square and the the Surrey Theatre. I mean, it was really for their they've been arrested for soliciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Not not for, for cross dressing. So no, no. Cross dressing. No, no. Um, they actually were found not guilty by the jury, um, but a lot of that was due to the fact the police went about collecting their evidence uh, in a rather underhand manner. Mm. Um, and there was also an element that these were just a pair of silly boys who liked dressing up as women. The, the seriousness of, of the offence or the perceived seriousness of the, the offence wasn't really taken that seriously. And the fact that two of the locations that these two men frequented, the, the Alhambra and the Surrey Theatre, uh, was suggestive as well because um, theatres were often pickup joints. And again, we've got this featuring in The Man with the Watches, where one of the items found on Edward's body is a pass-out ticket for the Lyceum Theatre. Cross-dressing at this time was, as the response of the jury in the uh, Bolton and Park case shows, uh, was seen as, as, as a pantomime routine. Mm. Um, and you've got the, the music hall at the time. Uh, you have uh, performers like Dan Lino cross-dressing as a woman. You have Vesta Tilly, a woman cross-dressing as a man. This was all seen as, as good, healthy, wholesome mainstream entertainment. Yeah. And this also crosses into the Sherlock Holmes canon as, as well, where you have Irene Adler, uh, a trained actress, 
uh, adopts male costume to fool Holmes, uh, and he doesn't spot it straight away. Mm. And Holmes himself, later on, in the Mazarin Stone, says to Count Negretto Silvius that, that he's observing Silvius whilst dressed as an old woman. <laughs> And if indeed this is a homosexual relationship that is being depicted in the story, there's quite an interesting take on that relationship at the end, because after McCoy has shot Edward accidentally, there is a confrontation between Edward's brother James and McCoy. And rather than ending the way you would expect, with James seeking revenge against McCoy and perhaps killing him, you actually end up with the two finding a rapprochement and deciding to work in the common interest to cover up the events. Perhaps in the final conversation between McCoy and James, he comes to realise that they are both as injured by the accidental death of Edward uh, as each other. Yes, when McCoy and and James have have come to an accommodation, McCoy turns to James and, and says, You loved your brother, I've no doubt, but you didn't love him a cent more than I loved him though you'll say that I took a queer way to show it. Anyhow, it seems a mighty empty world now that he is gone, and I don't care a continental whether you give me over to the hangman or not. Hmm. So this seems to our sort of modern eye quite an enlightened view. Um, But what do we think was Conan Doyle's attitude to homosexuality? From the evidence of a comment in Memories and Adventures, he actually seems to be not what we would exactly call liberal, no. in his views, but, but yeah, more enlightened for, for his own time. Doyle famously met Oscar Wilde uh, in 1889 when the, the American publisher Charles Stoddart brought them together to, to commission novels from each of them. Uh, and it's quite clear that, that Doyle really liked Wilde and, and was very impressed by him and was particularly saddened by, by Wilde's fall. And in Memories and Adventures, which was published in 1924, Conan Doyle says... Uh, of of Wilde, I thought at the time, i.e. of Wilde's trials in 1895, and still think that the monstrous development which ruined him was pathological, and that a hospital rather than a police court was the place for its consideration. The fact that he refers to it as a monstrous development mm. shows that he certainly wasn't um, enlightened in no. any sort of modern sense. Uh, but at least he definitely saw the iniquity of sending Wilde to prison for something which wasn't his own fault. This is, this is Doyle almost saying that Wilde couldn't help what he was. And there's another incident that's relevant to this later in Conan Doyle's life when he's involved with the trial of Roger Casement. And when it came out that uh, Casement was homosexual, the popular sympathy dissipated from Casement's case, but actually Conan Doyle was given forewarning of the fact that this information was going to come out, and it didn't change his opinion in defence of uh, Casement at all. So we might be tempted to think that he was certainly more enlightened than his contemporaries, but he has an almost medical view, I think, and Dan, Dan Stashauer says this in his biography of Conan Doyle, and that's almost reflected in this description of the mould in the cheese, that it's almost an infection. Uh, and also, um, when uh, one of the criminal investigators who's involved in the case uh, talks about the, the, the watches, he, he says, the excessive wearing of jewellery is an early symptom in some forms of mania. Yes. Which, again, is, is uh, a veiled comment, I, I, I think, on the, uh, the, the homosexual subtext uh, as, as well. Yeah. One has to wonder why Conan Doyle wrote 
this into the story. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming we're not reading too much into it in this case. It's not the ending that you would expect for this story at all. You would expect there to be a much more dramatic conclusion, probably James seeking revenge on McCoy. And in fact, this story has been adapted once. Uh, it was adapted as a episode of the Burt Cool's BBC radio drama as the 13 Watchers, and in that the Sparrow McCoy character called Sam Forrest in the adaptation actually turns the gun on himself and kills himself in the end, and there is certainly the homosexual subtext, but um, I, I just wonder what Conan Doyle might have been doing writing this material. No, and it is strange that it is written, and certainly with that ending, as, as a romantic tragedy. Mm. But we must also remember that Edward and McCoy are a criminal partnership, and there's a theme in Conan Doyle stories more broadly about uh, American violence coming to the shores of Great Britain. Yeah, it's a constant theme throughout the, the Sherlockian canon, from from the very first story, uh, Study in Scarlet, where the Mormon revenge story involves Americans murdering each other in London. Doyle had been attracted towards these sort of subjects from, from quite early on. He, he was obviously very interested in the depiction of American tough guys. Mm. Um, and, and as a young man, he read a lot of Bret Hart's stories, and Bret Hart was, was a great influence on him. Uh, and the, the, the Hart influence is his very strong in study in Scarlet. But if you look throughout the canon, there, there are a number of stories in which American crime and, and American violence is, is brought into England. You think of the Valley of Fear, the Five Orange Pips, the Red Circle, the Three Garydebs, um, and also the Dancing Men. And the Dancing Men is particularly interesting when you compare it to The Man with the Watches, because in The Dancing Men, the Chicago gangster Abe Slaney accidentally kills uh, the English gentleman, Hilton Cubitt, uh, who he regards as stolen his girl. And what? it's very pertinent that Slaney has shot Cubitt through the heart. This, this is a, a love story gone wrong. Uh, and the same is true of The Man with the Watches, where Sparrow McCoy accidentally shoots Edward through the heart. Mm. And Conan Doyle's very interested in American life more broadly, and he brings that into play here. So Sparrow McCoy and Edward, it transpires, have made a rapprochement with the gangs in New York City. Yeah, he, he makes reference in particular to, to Tammany Hall. Uh, which was the the, the centre of corrupt politics in in New York at the time, and it's where gangs, the cops, and the local politicians all came into into one world, uh, and it was a world which was very dominated by the Irish as well. Uh, we know from the background to this story that Edward and James are descended of English stock, mm. uh, but Sparrow McCoy, from his surname, is presumably from Irish stock and again has great say in in Tammany, would be able to uh, pass money their way and also perhaps be able to uh, lean on various politicians and policemen. Perhaps he knows their proclivities and uses Mm. that to to blackmail them. So let's now look at uh, The Man with the Watch's companion piece, The Lost Special. Paul, give us a bit of a flavour for what happens in that story. On urgent business to Europe from Central America in June 1890, Monsieur Louis Caratal and a companion, Eduardo Gomez, have no time to wait for the next London Express from Liverpool to London. It is imperative that they must be in Paris as soon as possible, so they contract a special train which leaves Liverpool at 4.31. It is last heard of passing Kenyon Junction at 5.20 and then disappears with its passengers and crew. With time, the body of the driver is found by the line, Then, a month later, a letter arrives from New York, apparently written by the guard to his wife. Then nothing. 
the mystery deepens rather than clears. Until, eight years later, the confession of a notorious French criminal, Herbert de Lernac, appears to throw light on the case and offer a solution. And the solution is that de Lernac, acting under instructions from some of the most powerful men in France, arranged for the murder of Louis Caratal and his servant by laying temporary railway tracks that diverted the special train into a disused mine shaft. The tracks were removed after giving the appearance that the special train had vanished. Now, the fascinating thing about this story is that it's painted on a a big canvas. It's got a huge political crisis as the backdrop. It said very near the beginning of the, the story, the country, that is Great Britain, the country was in the throes of a political crisis. And the attention of the public was further distracted by the important and sensational developments in Paris, where a huge scandal threatened to destroy the government and to wreck the reputations of many of the leading men in France. And so with this as the political backdrop, it the story almost feels more akin to something like the Naval Treaty or the Second Stain or the Bruce Partington plans, the three great diplomatic stories of the Sherlock Holmes canon. But while those Sherlock Holmes stories are quite vague in the historical detail, the Lost Special, I think, can actually be tracked down to some particular historical incidents. Yes, uh, it, it, it can be uh, linked into a, a particular period in French history where it was political crisis after political crisis. Uh, in 1887, there was a great scandal about the uh, the selling of honours. Uh, in 1889, the French general Boulanger attempted a right-wing coup. Throughout this period, there were anarchist bombs going off in, in Paris, and and there were two anarchist martyrs were created in in the the figures of Ravachol and Emile Henry. Um, this was a world of agents and double agents at the, at the time. Nothing, nothing was 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 certain. In 1894, the French pres- president Sadi Carnot was assassinated, and also in 1894, Captain Alfred Dreyfus mm. was disgraced, uh, which caused a scandal which ripped France apart for for, for several years. Conan Doyle himself actually visited Paris in November 1888, and it, it's tempting to think he picked up on some of this febrile political atmosphere at the time. Um, although the story he, he actually got out of it was uh, the Ring of Thoth, uh, an ancient mm. Egyptian mummy story. <laughs> but there was one particular scandal which, which broke e- e- in 1889. Yeah, that's the um, the Panama Canal scandal. Um, the French began constructing the Panama Canal in 1881. And one of its key figures, Ferdinand de Lesseps, uh, a diplomat, raised millions of francs towards the effort as a result of trading on the profitability of the Suez Canal, which had opened in uh, 1869. But the Panama Canal was a far more difficult engineering project. Um, It required cutting through dense jungle, elevation, creating locks, and the conditions were very unfavourable to workers. And after the expenditure of almost 300 million francs and the the loss of about 20,000 lives, the French Panama Canal Company uh, that had been responsible for the project went bankrupt in 1889. And it was subsequently revealed that members of the French government had taken bribes to keep quiet about the company's financial troubles. And this all broke in in 1892, when the scale of the bankruptcy became clear, about 800,000 people lost their investments, uh, and a large group of ministers, including Clemenceau, were accused by French nationalists of taking bribes uh, from de Lesseps in 1888 to allow stocks to be issued 
despite knowing that the the company was very near to collapse. And uh, it's an incredible political scandal. 500 members of parliament, including six ministers, were implicated, and 100 people were subsequently charged. And in fact, the Panama Canal Company's financial advisor, Baron Reinach, who uh, was accused of issuing the bribes, actually committed suicide. So it was an incredible uh, political scandal at the time. And when you look at the setting of uh, the Lost Special, Louis Caratal is a financier from South America. It's quite conceivable that he was involved in the Panama Canal building. He had evidence against these individuals, and he was coming to Paris in 1890 to uh, uh, reveal the truth of what had happened. So while uh, Delenac is uh, successful and Louis Caratal does not make it to uh, Paris, one might uh, be tempted to think that his death merely delayed the inevitable criminal trial and scandal that that broke from 1892. And, um, you know, one wonders if Conan Doyle, who was an investor in his own right in many schemes, uh, was actually one of the 800,000 people who, who lost their investments in the Panama Canal scandal. And to say, yeah, yes, if, if that was the case as well, you, you can see why Conan Doyle takes such a delight in, in making de Lernac such a, a gloating character mm-hmm. as he talks about wrecking these men's futures. Yeah, de Lernac makes several references that really make it very, very clear that he has material against the elites. The story opens with de Lernac threatening to reveal the identities of the people who paid him to keep Louis Caratal silent. And addressing those individuals, he he writes, For your own sake, if not for mine, make haste, Monsieur de Blanc, and Jean-Ron Blanc, and Baron Blanc, brackets, you can fill up the blanks for yourselves as you read this. I promise you that in the next edition, there will be no blanks to fill. Um, And, you know, Baron Reinach was the Mm. chief financial advisor of the Panama Canal Company, so... You know, it's another connection there. And and Delonac fits into that whole world of, of agents and double agents as well that was going on with the anarchist outrages and who was playing which side against whom. And, and the way he, uh, Delonac, that is, closes his, his statement, Messieurs, you may believe that Herbert Delonac is quite as formidable when he is against you as when he was with you and that he is not a man to go to the guillotine until he has seen that every one of you is en route for New Caledonia. <laughs> And de Lernac is, in many ways, a, a Moriarty-like figure. In fact, some Sherlockians have suggested that uh, they are, in fact, one and the same, although the fact that de Lernac is um, arrested and waiting trial, if not sentencing and execution, would suggest that he's not exactly the Napoleon <laughs> of crime. But, you know, there are some connections there in that we know that Moriarty took foreign commissions because he does so in the Valley of Fear and he's no stranger to arranging special trains because he picks one up in the final problem to go pursuing homes across to Switzerland. And there's another nice little tiny detail in this, which is that there is the description of de Caratal's agent as a gentlemanly man of military appearance. And some people have suggested that that could be uh, Colonel Sebastian Moran, although we should remember that uh, in the Valley of Fear we discover that Professor Moriarty had a brother, also called James, Colonel James Moriarty, who is uh, a station master in the west of England, so perhaps it was both a gentleman of military bearing with a good knowledge of how the train system works. Uh, and it is interesting as well that the uh, nom de guerre that this individual goes under is Horace Moore, mm. Moriarty Moran. <laughs> and there's possibly another 
Valley of Fear connection in The Lost Special in that there's an amateur reasoner of some celebrity, and we'll come on to this individual in a bit, who posits that the disappearance of this train may be the work of, quote, a secret society of colliers, an English Camorra, uh, the Camorra being a criminal fraternity in, in Naples that was destroyed around the uh, time of the First World War. And it, that sounds like a sort of English equivalent of the Scourers in the Valley of Fear. And we know that um, Conan Doyle based the Scourers on the Molly Maguires and the Pinkerton detective who went undercover to destroy their reign of terror in the mining districts of Pennsylvania in the 1870s. So perhaps he was drawing on similar kind of influences here. Now, both these stories have come in for considerable attention from Sherlockians in particular, because of two letters that appear in the stories. In The Man with the Watches, a theory is put forward by a well-known criminal investigator, and in The Lost Special, a theory is put forward by an amateur reasoner of some celebrity at that date. And there are arguments for and against the individual being Sherlock Holmes. In The Man with the Watches, the well-known criminal investigator writes a letter in spring 1892, which would be during the great hiatus when Sherlock Holmes is supposedly dead, so... It doesn't feel right that it would be Sherlock Holmes writing to reveal that he is actually alive and what would dear old Watson have thought. But also there is the problem that uh, the solution put forward by the reasoner is completely wrong. Yes. Um, And uh, could easily be dismissed. In the Lost Special, there is perhaps a little bit more evidence to suggest that it is Sherlock Holmes because he uses the famous maxim. Uh, It is one of the elementary principles of practical reasoning, he remarked, that when the impossible has been eliminated, the residuum, however improbable, must contain the truth. And that maxim is very commonly associated with Sherlock Holmes. But of course, this quote could also have come from somebody who's simply read the Sherlock Holmes stories. Yes, indeed. And... um, (laughs) might not have read the Sherlock Holmes stories they might have read Edgar Allan Poe Mm. because Conan Doyle first used that maxim not in a Sherlock Holmes story but in a short story called The Fate of the Evangeline published in the boy's own paper in December 1885 the quote from that story is uh, it would be well if those who express opinions upon such subjects would bear in mind those simple rules as to the analysis of evidence laid down by Auguste Dupin exclude the impossible, he remarks in one of Poe's immortal stories, and what is left, however improbable, must be the truth. So there's Conan Doyle using the maxim two years before uh, Sherlock Holmes appears on the scene. And Sherlockians have had great fun picking over the details within the letters and the stories to work out if the author was Sherlock Holmes or indeed it was somebody else in the canon, starting indeed with one of the most important figures in Sherlockian history, Christopher Morley. Yes, Christopher Morley in The Bowling Green on 3rd of March 1934 uh, wrote, If Mr Vincent Starrett or other Baker Street Irregulars wish the Sherlock Holmes Codex to be complete, they must look at two stories in which Holmes is not mentioned by name, but where he is certainly present by allusion, meaning the man with the watches and the lost special. Uh, He expanded on this in 1942. Uh, What is here called the lost special is the material he, Watson, proposed to amplify as the papers of ex-president Murillo, and the tragic story of the young, and I am afraid epicene, fellow with the timepieces, (laughs) was to have introduced the atrocious affair of the card scandal at the Nonpareil Club. Morley has absolutely no evidence for this, I'm afraid. No, no. Um, um, I, I would, it would be surely that the, the papers of ex-president Murillo actually did appear as, as Wisteria Lodge. Yeah. I think Morley was trying to find a rationale for why Wisteria Lodge is set in 1892, when Holmes is supposedly dead. So he's trying to find a single solution to both problems, 
Although Morley does actually change his tune, or appears to change his tune, because there's a volume, Letters from Baker Street, uh, 1942, by Edgar W. Smith, which reproduces The Man with the Watches and The Lost Special, uh, and includes a letter purporting to be from Stanley Hopkins, but sourced by Christopher Morley, that reveals that the author of the letters was, in fact, Mycroft Holmes. And we've had other suggestions for potential writers, Anthony Boucher, Uh, in Profile by Gaslight, another volume edited by Edgar Smith, 1944, in which he actually argues that the author of the letters is Sherinford Holmes, a previously unknown third Holmes brother, who apparently took Sherlock's place after the Reichenbach Falls. And this also explains some of the mistakes made by the newly returned Sherlock Holmes in the collection of adventures that would be called The Return. But probably the most outlandish theory for how it could be Sherlock Holmes was uh, cited by Lord Donegal. Yes, Lord Donegal uh, says, My own opinions, for what they may be worth, are as follows. Holmes definitely wrote both the letters, the one to the Times, from London, and the one to the Gazette, from Tibet, as postulated by Carson Simpson. And this is a theory where Holmes, during the Great Hiatus, during his time in Tibet, learned from the Lamas how to project his astral body and deliver letters (laughs) using his astral body. Uh, And then uh, Lord Donegal then goes on to say, remembering that although the events occurred in 1890 and 1892, neither account was published until 1898. I think it most probable that Holmes and Dr Conan Doyle collaborated in putting together the Strand magazine versions of the events. I think astral projection takes the biscuit for the um, the most ludicrous of the suggestions. It's sheer lunacy, Watson. It's sheer lunacy, it is indeed. The two that I quite like in, in this mode, one of them is by Walter Shepard in On the Scent with Sherlock Holmes, who suggests that uh, the author is Barker, Holmes's hated rival on the Surrey shore from the retired Cullerman. Um, but quite a few people have suggested that the writer of the, the letters could indeed be Watson, One might describe him as a well-known criminal investigator through his partnership with Sherlock Holmes. And we know in The Empty House that he claims to have dabbled in a bit of detection himself. He says, uh, It can be imagined that my close intimacy with Sherlock Holmes had interested me deeply in crime, and that after his disappearance, I never failed to read with care the various problems which came before the public, and I even attempted more than once for my own private satisfaction to employ his methods in their solution, though with indifferent success. And the really nice uh, pointer to it potentially being Watson is the reference you made earlier, Paul, to incipient mania as an explanation for why Edward possessed so many watches, which is reminiscent of uh, Watson talking about monomania or the idée fixe <laughs> in uh, in the Six Napoleons as the explanation for why um, Beppo would go around smashing busts of Napoleon. But then there is the school of thought that argues very firmly that this is not uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, or any other imposter from the canon at all. Uh, Yeah, as uh, Christopher Roden uh, quite rightly points out in an article written for the Northern Musgraves in 1995, as far as the man with the watches and the lost special are concerned, Conan Doyle was having his own little joke with both his editors and his readers. He wanted those who were clamouring for more Holmes to think that this might just be Holmes coming back, but he made his detective in these stories so inept that we could not for a minute seriously believe that it was Holmes. Uh, and you, you have to agree with uh, Christopher Roden's uh, assessment there when, when you read this from the well-known criminal investigator in The Man with the Watches. Whatever may be the truth, 
It must depend upon some bizarre and rare combination of events, so we need have no hesitation in postulating such events in our explanation. In the absence of data, we must abandon the analytic or scientific method of investigation and must approach it in the synthetic fashion. In a word, instead of taking known events and deducing from them what has occurred, we must build up a fanciful explanation. Are those the words of Holmes? Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. I think the other evidence against it being uh, Holmes is the fantastic line in the, the letter in the Lost Special, where the amateur reasoner of some celebrity at that date suggests that a careful supervision of the pawnbroker's shops of the district might possibly bring some suggestive facts to light about what? What on earth was being pawned by the people who had stolen this train? It's hardly going to be a train carriage. And Lord Donegal, for all his love of uh, fanciful explanations in his conclusion, actually hits the nail on the head. However, perplexing as the literary problems posed by the lost special and the man with the watches may be, none can deny that they are by any standard rattling good yarns. Mm. So while we can agree with uh, Christopher Roden that these are not really Sherlock Holmes stories, they are commonly collected as the apocrypha of Sherlock Holmes and they've appeared in collections by uh, people such as uh, Jack Tracy, Peter Haining, Lancelin Green, Les Klinger most recently in the... uh, last volume of his Sherlock Holmes reference library, and they often appear alongside other stories by Conan Doyle, most notably The Field Bazaar, which was written by Conan Doyle in 1896 for an edition of The Student, his uh, alma mater's uh, student magazine, to help raise money for a sports hall, and uh, How Watson Learned the Trick, which was written by Conan Doyle in 1922 as his contribution to a quite glorious miniature doll's house for Queen Mary, the wife of... uh, George V, in which there are tiny volumes, and each volume has an original story by a writer. So they're not uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, and uh, nor do they need to be. No, uh, Lord Donegal talks of the problem of the authorship of The Lost Special and The Man with the Watches. There is no problem of authorship. Uh, These stories were written by Arthur Conan Doyle, not Watson or Mycroft Holmes, Uh, What is most interesting, really, isn't the possible Sherlockian connotations of the stories, but the the way Conan Doyle uses popular fiction to explore the social and political issues of the time in in a highly entertaining manner. Now, I mentioned earlier that The Man with the Watchers had been adapted for the BBC radio series The Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, but The Lost Special, too, has been adapted as a quasi-Sherlockian tale, albeit obliquely, in the first episode of the third series of Sherlock, in an episode entitled The Empty Hearse. A man is seen getting into a train carriage at one station, only for the carriage to be empty at the next, and it transpires that the carriage was diverted into a siding where it was loaded with explosives to destroy Parliament in a sort of modern version of the gunpowder plot. So it's not a direct adaptation, but the episode does borrow an idea from The Lost Special. Um, And The Lost Special has also been explored by pastiche writers over the years, the most notable being August Derleth, the creator of the Holmesian avatar Solar Ponds, who wrote The Adventure of the Lost Locomotive, a version of The Lost Special, but with a very different solution. But more often than not, The Lost Special has been adapted in its own right, uh, without Sherlock Holmes or an equivalent. It was first adapted as a 12-part movie serial for Universal in 1932, Um, one of those great single-reel serials like Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars or King of the Rocket Men, Um, but uh, significantly more boring, it must be said. In this version, the action is moved from northern England to the American West, and the train, which is uh, carrying gold bullion, 
is stolen by um, coal miners who divert the the train into into um, into a mine. Uh, that's on YouTube, and we'll put a link in the show notes. But probably the best adaptation of the Lost Special is a CBS radio adaptation made in 1943 as part of a series called Suspense, um, a radio series which also adapted The Ring of Thoth by Conan Doyle. And this version stars Orson Welles as a wonderfully over-the-top um, Delanac. And the format of the episode is Delanac giving his confession live on the radio, during which he threatens to reveal the names of his employers. It ends with him being shot dead in the studio moments before he can reveal the names of his conspirators. And Wells is fantastic, and they cram an awful lot into 30 minutes. That's also on YouTube, so we'll put a link in the show notes. So that brings us to the end of this episode, and we've enjoyed revisiting these two stories. They show Conan Doyle bringing a different take on the detective story and tackling some fascinating social and political issues along the way. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can reach us on Twitter, where we are at Doings of Doyle, or via the website doingsofdoyle.com, where you can also find the show notes. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you haven't enjoyed it, then please don't. So, Paul, what do we have next time? Next time we're moving into more macabre territory with the 1893 story, The Case of Lady Sannox, which was part of the uh, Round the Red Lamp series. Excellent. A very dark story indeed, and not one for the faint-hearted. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. It transpires that Sparrow and Edward... I can't call him Sparrow, it's ridiculous. Just call him McCoy. Uh, McCoy. There we go. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go.